Here we are again. It's another just cast. You may be aware, as I am, that I can breathe this week, which is incredibly good news. And my nose is working. I hate to tell you all this medical stuff, but it's been going on. And yesterday, just for good measure, just because I feel like, you know, let's keep keep me on my toes. I had a colonoscopy as well. Woohoo! Um, two little tiny little um, polyps, apparently. I'm going to be fine. Not dead yet. But it's great. Spring is here and I'm feeling better, which is always a good thing. And I am particularly delighted this week to start a conversation about something that obviously we've talked about on the dish for many years and that's always intrigued me and pushed me in ways that I don't find very comfortable, which is veganism. And the morality or otherwise of killing and eating animals, if we put it in a rather blunt kind of way. And so I was talking to Chris about this and trying to find somebody to engage who would be really interesting on this. Not a, not a, not a, not a, not a soy boy, so to speak. Anyway, we have with us a man called John Oberg. John Oberg is an animal rights advocate and social media professional. He once served as the director of new media for the Humane League and as the Director of Communications for Vegan Outreach. Now he's just an independent animal advocate, whatever that means. He's both a vegan, but more importantly, he's a powerlifter. As I can see in studio, you can be vegan and jacked. Welcome to the Dishcast, John. And also he's in the studio with me today, which is which is wonderful. Thank you for coming in, John. Nice to, nice to meet you. Andrew, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's a real honor to be here. <laughs> and, and he is. He, if you have an image, as I do, <laughs> in my head, of your average pathetic pajama boy vegan sitting there with his master's degree in critical gender theory and munching on the occasional piece of fennel, Au contraire, here you have John Oberg, this, this strapping, young, muscle-bound, powerlifting, looks like he just walked out of some kind of MMA class as the vegan. So first of all, John, congratulations. You have completely defied the stereotype just by walking in the door. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. I, you know, I, I think that it's important as an advocate for animals and, and veganism to try and break some stereotypes. And you know, vegans face a lot of stereotypes, so I am happy to do my part. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny how sometimes that kind of just matters, even though it shouldn't matter, right? I mean, this is all completely ridiculous. How someone looks should not have any bearing upon the cogency of their argument. But the truth is in, in the world, in public, these things, I remember just just being out as a gay person like 30 years ago, when not many people were out, you just, by just Showing that gay people were a variety of different kinds of people, that they, that the way you previously identified them might have been just confirmation bias, and you just wouldn't see the gay man in front of you. So with it was helpful, just helpful. It, it, it didn't mean you better than anybody else. It didn't mean that you were somehow a superior sort of gay to more stereotypical kind of gays. It didn't mean any of that. It just meant you helped loosen up the atmosphere culturally in a way to help people engage the actual argument. I guess that's roughly, that's roughly how you see it. Yeah, pretty similar concept. You know, I think that we need to be 
vegans need to be relatable and we need people to be able to see <laughs> we need people need to be able to see themselves in our shoes and i think that if all of us i don't know dress a certain way or act a certain way i think that that will hinder our ability to influence others and i am all about influencing the people who aren't already like me <laughs> it's all about influencing non-vegans because you know these are the people out there who can make a difference for animals because a vegan can't get any more vegan you know I, i'm trying don't to create you have a vegan other, world don't you have other vegans who aren't quite as extreme vegan as you that you can spend your life beating up on isn't that what most progressive activists do rather than actually trying to persuade the other side they just lecture each other on who's the most woke and who's the most most vegan but anyway i'm just Obviously, that's not a, it's a rhetorical question. Tell me, where did you grow up? Where were you born? So I was born in Detroit, Michigan, grew up in the surrounding area, and I grew up mainly with just my mom who who raised me and really instilled a sense of compassion for animals and, you know, the innocent in What does me. that mean? What does she do? So she, so she had a really big heart for animals, and she really taught me that, you know, animals are also deserving of our compassion and our consideration and our respect. And so for years, we did things like TNR, which would be trapping, neutering, and releasing feral cats, for example, so that you know they didn't breed uncontrollably. And you know this really reduced a lot of animal stuff. We did other various animal rescue efforts, and we protested deer hunts, particularly a cull that took place at a park that we went to on a regular basis that really broke our hearts. And my mom really installed, you know, instilled this sense of compassion for animals in me. Where did she get that from? That's a good question. I, I always kind of wondered that. And unfortunately, my mom passed away seven years ago, so I, I can't ask her now where she got this. But it's something that she had for basically the entirety of her life. Mm. And it's something I've had for the entirety of my life as well. She used to tell me this story about how when I was just a little baby, I was just like laying on the in the middle of the living room floor and our cat kind of rolled off the couch onto the floor. And like I was so worried, I like crawled over to the cat and was petting them to make sure they were okay. And so apparently, you know, it, it's been in, 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 in my genes all along as well. Yeah, but it's what did you do for a living? My mom? Yeah, I want to understand your mom. Because ah. she's obviously, everything you say, she is in some ways the inspiration for your life. Yeah, my mom had some physical issues that prevented her from work. She would, we would do everything we could to make ends meet. As a single mother, it was really hard. We grew up with without much money. Something we would do is... Were you an only son? Yes, yes. I was the only child. and something What, we what were, happened to your dad, if you don't mind me um, asking? Yeah, he was never in the picture. Okay. So it was just my mom and I. And something that we would do to make ends meet was is that we would go to local parks. And so in the state of Michigan at, in the 90s, I think it might be the, still the same way. I'm not sure. But in the 90s, at least, you get 10 cents for a can if you return to the grocery store. And we would go to local parks in, in Michigan and we would go from trash can to trash can searching through to find empty aluminum cans and we would get a few hundred over the course of a few hours and over the course of a day and you know that would give us 10 20 30 bucks that would then go towards our bills and this was you know the kind of thing that my mom and I would do together and it was you know looking back it was certainly a great bonding experience and it was actually an something that happened then that really taught me how to use 
my love for animals and turn it into advocacy. And so my mom and I, we would go to this park called Stony Creek. And Stony Creek was a state park. And there were dozens of garbage cans across numerous small parks within this large park. And so we would spend much of the day going there and we'd start in the early morning. And you had to start really early at the crack of dawn because that's, you know, you get there before other people got there. It was this competitive thing. And so my mom and I would do this. And in the mornings, there was almost nobody else in these parks, but there were deer. And we, it was sort of majestic. You know, you'd be walking from trash can to trash can. And, and while you're on your little walk, you see these deer popping their head out and looking around and, and looking at you, curious about who you are. And we really sort of developed kind of a, a bond with these animals. And it was sort of special. And we did this for years. And then one day we learned the heartbreaking news that this park wanted to cull these animals and cull is a very polite term for slaughter these animals to kill these animals who never faced anything like that prior and we were why, why because they were there were too many of them or there were diseases or something yeah or? you know it was they said that there was too many of them you know my personal opinion then and still is today is that they were just looking for a reason to shoot these animals because they enjoy this. It was, you know, the the hunting lobby was pushing for this at the time because they wanted to, you know, they enjoyed the process uh, of hunting but these animals. But hold on, no, but the park itself, there must have been some precipitating event that would require them to cull, right? Was there, What was the uh, reason given? Anyway? Yeah. So, so keep in mind, this I was eight or nine years okay, old then, so, so okay. it was a little tough for me to remember the exact details. Okay. But from what I can remember, the herd DNR, yeah, there was herd thinning and the DNR was, you know, buddy buddies with the hunters and us as two. The DNR lone, is the Department of Natural Resources okay. in Michigan and at this park. And, you know, us as two lone animal advocates who are, you know, walking around from trash can to trash can to get empty bottles. You know, we didn't have much sway, but something that really did something to me. And this is. You know, for me, at the time, as an eight or nine-year-old, I would have been sad about this, but not done anything about it. But my mom, she did not sit back and rest on her laurels. What she did was she said, Johnny, we have to do something about this. And so she called up every local news station, got as much media as she possibly could. And she took me and her with homemade signs and went to the entrances and the exits of this park. And we stood there day after day showing you know everybody who went into the park or exited the park, show, showing them these signs that showed that, you know, kind of expressed our compassion for these like animals. What, 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 our what did outrage. the signs say? One said, being cruel isn't cool. Another one said something like, save the deer. And but, but John, isn't I mean, isn't aren't you? Isn't that exactly why people find vegans irritating? It's sort of like it's 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 there may be surely there are reasons occasionally why there should be culling of herds. I mean there are. are I mean I I hear there are. Maybe there isn't enough for them to to eat. You know within a particular. Maybe they're running out of territory. I don't I don't know all the answers to that. But it seems to me to that to argue. And we'll get back to you. We'll get back to your childhood, but argue that that the only reason that people might want to hin these herds because they just like killing killing animals. It seems a little harsh. Yeah, I mean, again, I maybe am... they do. I don't know, but I there are arguments 
otherwise. But anyway, you and your you you and your mom were were doing this. How old were you when it was? I was eight or nine years wow. old. So it was like the the mid nineties, and it was something that taught me that I think you need to when you see an injustice going on in the world that you don't just sit back and let it happen. You uh -huh. do what we could. And what did I think you, was did your mom ever did you ever have meat growing up? Yes. Oh, so okay. I grew up a meat eater. My mom ate meat for most okay, so of her she life. Made a, she made distinction. She made a distinction. So yeah. So we collectively made a distinction distinction between mm. the animals who we loved, you know, cats, dogs, deer, and so on, and the animals who were on our plates. And it wasn't until years later that that we we both made that connection. Hmm. And so we decided as you know as a team that we were going to try and stick up for these deer and we would you know pro their killing it and you know my mom had strategy for it you know it wasn't just taking signs to try and look cool or something you know we weren't cool it was michigan it was winter it was cold as hell <laughs> and it was it wasn't a fun process mm -hmm. you know you'd have some people give us the middle finger you know a few people would maybe honk in support did you win so unfortunately our cries eventually they sort of fell on deaf ears and it it didn't work out but what this experience taught me was that when you do see something in the world that's not that you know you don't agree with or that you want to fight against you do something about it and that was what really taught me that advocacy is something that every animal every animal lover should certainly engage in because the animals have a lot working against them but they do have a few people who really want to make the, their lives better and the world a kinder place for animals and that's where I thought my role could be which you know and that's where your mother really came from was she a religious person or was she she, she was, was just, not a religious person she just she she loved animals and she loved me and we had a pets? really great relationship yep. dogs and cats yeah yeah we had cats we had we had turtles as well and you know so I grew up around these animals but you know I think that most people in the United States, at least, grow up around animals. And I think that the vast majority of would the vast majority of us would never want cruelty to no, happen to these animals. Absolutely allergic to cruelty. Exactly, to exactly. Animals. You know, you ask anybody in the street, hey, do you think animal cruelty is acceptable? Everybody's gonna say no. Everybody, you know, how hard is it for us to get everybody to agree on one thing? It's almost impossible. Almost nobody agrees on anything. But almost everybody agrees that animal cruelty is wrong. Yeah, but then you have two two words there, and animal and cruelty, and we have to unpack that, right? Because I think people in, in, inherently we ha we make distinctions within the animal kingdom, and there are different ways of doing that, right? Because now, is your view that all life, all animal, insect, any kind of organism, is never to be eaten? never to be consumed by another animal because one of the, the the key facts of the planet is that is that animals exist by eating each other this this is this is universal it is not all obviously there are there are obviously some that that eat just plants but a hell of a lot of us creatures on earth eat other creatures and this seems to be integral to our evolution, integral to natural selection, integral to our ability to survive. So what you're arguing is really a moral rejection of, let me put it this way, of reality. Well, that's why I'm glad you have me on the show today, is to kind of unpack okay, animal let's do cruelty. It. And what I believe is that 
we need to look at all sentient life. So all animals who have the capability of experiencing pain, which we all recognize as pain is bad. And if you are hearing this and think, oh, pain isn't bad, you know, burn your finger on the stove. Yeah, but there are, there, are, there are varieties of pain. Obviously, some pain is essential because if we didn't experience pain, we wouldn't learn to avoid danger. I mean, the, experiencing some level of pain as animals is actually crucial to our, our, our survival. Exactly. Pain, I'm not saying that, you know, pain doesn't exist for a good reason, but unnecessary pain being caused does pain, to animals does, does, does let's say an ant yeah. is squished does that do, can we use the word pain to describe that or as, as opposed to say sticking a needle in an, in a grown adult i mean that it seems to me that the potent the brain's potential to understand pain and to process it is 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 if, if pain is the threshold, then you must have some way of determining to what extent each individual animal will experience pain, right? Yeah. So pain is something, you know, is you know, universal to sentient creatures. And there is a lot of data to still be collected and sifted through when it comes to the complexity of insects. But I think it's important to realize and recognize that farm animals, for example, but let, absolutely let, feel pain yeah let, let, we'll get to them in a minute i'm trying to get to the very basics here but ants may not feel pain in any way that we could possibly and maybe it's anthropogenic of us entirely anthropomorphic of it anthropomorphic of us to assume that animals experience pain in exactly the same way that we experience pain partly because we have brains these huge brains that can think of pain in the past can remember it can think of it in the future all sorts of things that may not make pain as the same experience for animals. Would you concede there's some point at which an animal becomes sentient like a human or like in a way that we could understand and use the moral language of pain? And up until then, they don't. And after that, they do. Is that is that where you're, where you're getting at? Yeah. And, and I'm on the favor of erring on the side of caution because pain is such an awful experience. And the kinds of pain that we can inflict on others is so massively bad. It's so massively just wretched in some ways. If I, if I lean back and I've squished a bug, right, yeah. and I didn't really mean it particularly, or if I'm just batting one away and I yeah. kill it, yeah. I can't find that to be morally horrifying. Just, it just intuitively doesn't horrify me. Yeah. So, so for one, I, I want to make very clear, Andrew, that, you know, my, the vast majority of my advocacy is, is for... But where would you start? Like, where's, <clears throat> where, does it, where does an animal begin to be of, 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 of moral importance? If they're sentient, if they're able to feel pain. they're all pain. sentient. They're all if sentient. They're all, if they're able to feel pain. And well, what isn't able to feel? How about a turtle? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe pain. that. Yeah, I believe that turtles feel pain, just like I believe that cats and dogs feel pain, just like I believe that pigs and cows and chickens feel pain, and therefore we should take steps. But do they that feel a chicken reduce and the a suffering cow. that these let's, animals experience? Let's take a chicken and a cow. What? Uh, surely they experience it differently. Pain. Sure, they they experience lots of things differently. But if you hit, if you kick a pig. They are going to react similarly sure. to if you kick a dog, which is going to act similarly if you kick a human. 
you know, they are going to react and they are going to clearly experience something that they do not want to experience. And it is up to us as people who are making choices every single day that matter to beings that feel pain to try and reduce this suffering. And what about, and what about no when way, animals by, inflict terrible pain on other animals? Yes. Like, so there's say a, a lot of cruelty. Tearing, tearing another animal apart. He doesn't have any interest in protecting this, yeah. this, this other creature from pain. In fact, it's, it's almost terrifying to watch the cruelty of animals. So why does that give I me? Mean, at some point, you're, you must be adopting a different standard for humans than you are for animals. Well, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because there is certainly a tremendous amount of cruelty and suffering in the animal kingdom, even excluding humans from that. But it can't but, be cruelty if they're not intending anything to be cruel. They're just simply attempting to... To 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 survive in I mean trying to most of the cruelty is done for survival's sake right. because that's their pre, that's their prey or that's how they stay alive well, they got to feed their own offspring that's why they're going to be so it's not cruel well what I'm saying you know what I'm saying cruelty in 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 regard to the interactions between animals I'm just saying that one is causing suffering to the other but. What I am saying as an advocate for animals is that what is happening between animals does not should not dictate how we interact with animals. They are two Why? separate things because it does not matter, you know, if aren't a lion we, is eating we animals. Yes, but we as human beings in the year 2023, we can make choices that reduce the suffering of animals and regardless of not regardless or not of whether or not a lion is going to chase down a zebra and cause that zebra so much suffering like that does make me sad and i wish that that suffering didn't exist but that is out of my control what is within my control is the choices that i make on a day-to-day -day basis and when i go to the grocery store I am choosing one thing off of a shelf instead of another. And this one thing I'm choosing doesn't cause suffering versus another thing I could be choosing that does cause suffering. When I go to a restaurant, I am choosing something off of a menu that I can be confident an animal did not suffer for. Whereas the vast majority of people, we love animals, but are how, making choices on a regular possible? basis that are causing suffering, whether or not we want to or not. Right. If you could kill an animal without, well, this is partly the argument, right? If you can kill an animal instantly or without suffering, that would change the moral equation? There would be a lot of changes to the moral equation if things were different. But the thing is, it is impossible. It's not even worth entertaining the idea because it is an impossibility to raise farm animals in a way that is going to fit this narrative. And it's the easy way out that many meat eaters take when they try and consider that option when the significantly easier, healthier, cheaper option is to choose more plant-based foods. And we can each make choices that really do make a really big difference for animals because, like I said, we all you know, recognize that Suffering is bad, and we don't want to cause unnecessary suffering, and our choices really 
dictate whether or not we are going to, you know, have animals suffer or not. Why did humans eat animals in the first place? It's a good question. You know, I'm not a anthropologist, so I can't. Well, we, we, we kind of know, don't we? I mean, we kind of know that it was really good protein. It was it, it was it made them stronger. It, it was incredibly good nutrition. They got all sorts of nutrients. And 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 that was sort of our prime, along with berries and other shit we picked up. Yeah. And uh, you know what? You know, hundreds and, and or here thousands we are, of here years we are. ago. This is it, nature. This is nature. This is this is who we are as 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 animals now if one could what i'm curious about is i we can talk later about animal factory farming and all the rest of it all of which i, I think you have some extremely strong points but i'm kind of interested in the the sort of philosophical idea of the fact that it would be it was wrong for humans to kill animals we would no longer exist if we hadn't killed animals we wouldn't so at some point you're you're asking for us to adopt a standard that humans never adopted. Uh, you're asking us to evolve in a really quite dramatic way out of being the animals that we, that we began as. There are lots of things that we do today that we didn't do then. And there are lots of things that we did then that we don't do today. Humans evolve, humans change. And in 2023, we no longer have to live as cave people. We can live as people living in the modern era where we have access to grocery stores, we have access to restaurants, we have access to our own food, growing our own food. We have access to lots of options that we didn't have in the past. And therefore, we should live as modern humans rather than trying to live to some standard from thousands or tens of thousands of years ago. Well, I'm just saying that most of us understand that the, the human body, for example, and its health. Much of what we discover today is that, in fact, to be more in touch with the way humans lived and ate and conducted themselves for 195,000 years as hunter-gatherers is actually an important corrective to the period in which humans settled down and grew plants and, 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 and agriculture and actually suffered a decline in their, in their lifespans marginally in that period before recovering back their lifespans. So the question really is that you, it, it's interesting that, that, that in fact you're, you're, you're very forward looking in the sense that we're leaving behind our nature. We are, we, we, in fact, we can overcome our nature or substitute it somehow. So, for example, instead of running around all day long hunting antelope or whatever and occasionally killing them and eating them, we sit around all day and eat <laughs> processed foods <laughs> which, have, which have benignly created. I'm just saying that you can see there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a slight tension here. In fact, you, you really want us to go beyond, in a way, anything that humans have done before. That, that seems to me to be an interesting point that isn't often made. I mean, you're, you're asking for a revolution in human, in human understanding of who we are as animals. Yeah, I think that we no longer need to eat animals to survive. We no longer need to run around chasing antelope, as you say. We, we don't need to do that. It was and good so for us, however. We got, <laughs> it kept us very, very healthy. It kept our body weight. Um, we can still do that today without having to chase can. antelope. And there's lots of, you know, there's gyms. There's lots of different exercises that you can do that don't require running through prairies chasing so why, animals. why am I attached 
so attached to the idea of a steak or a rasher of bacon? Because you likely because you grew up eating that. And I grew up eating that as well. And I love that. I, I used to eat so many animals. I used to, you know, as a 19-year-old, I once ate 39 chicken wings in a single sitting. 39 chicken wings. And counted them and, afterwards. Yeah, I did. Well, there's, you know, my friends were egging me on and I was, okay. you know, going for as much as I possibly could. I used to eat two slabs of ribs in in one sitting as a teenager. And I loved animals. And so I never even thought about how my choices were really making an impact on animals. And and I and I certainly loved meat. I loved dairy. I, I you know, I, I I loved cheese. I loved eggs. And then I realized, you know, if I love animals, maybe I should try and make the connection between the foods that I was eating and the, and the animals I was eating. Now, that just raises another question that's in my head. Let's say we did get rid of eating animals. There would be a lot fewer cows on the planet, right? Their population would probably go down, what, 95? What you're talking about is the is a future in which there are vastly fewer animals than we than currently exist. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's absolutely bizarre that we have billions and tens of billions of animals that we we're raising behind the closed doors of factory farms and slaughterhouses. And these animals are living in just absolutely miserable conditions, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And the... But when you, when you add, a, some, one of the ironies is that some people will say... The cows, for example, are among the most successful species ever existed on Earth. The, the, they, 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 the numbers that they have are a species triumph. Of course, because they latched onto humans. Similarly with dogs, for that matter. There are many more than would have existed without humans. There is a paradox here that if you get rid of eating animals, you're also going to get rid of a lot of animals. And I guess that's part of the point, isn't it? Because fewer animals fart less, they, 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 they eat less, you are contributing massively to reducing carbon energy if you reduce the number of actual living, breathing animals on the planet and increase the number of plants sucking in the, <laughs> sucking in the carbon dioxide, right? Conversely, I mean, there's no, there's no benefit to just raising, you know, bringing these animals into existence for, for no reason. And this would take, you know, this, these changes happen slowly over time. You know, I don't expect a vegan world over. I do not expect that next week or next year or even next decade we're going to have a vegan world. And so, you know, we are we aren't going to suddenly have some situation where we have 10 billion farm animals on our hands and we don't know what to do with them. That's not going to happen. Just like every other change. Uh, oh, I know, I know. And I, I but I just find these par these are kind of weird paradoxes here that, that animal rights will require actually the disappearance of billions of animals that we have created for our own use in a way and, and literally for our own for our own use if 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 humans were capable of living as we used to let's say take us back a couple of centuries in which in which animals were not created en masse they were not they were generated on they were mainly part of an agricultural society which which fed its they weren't treated as objects in a factory as it were they were treated and human beings had right quite complicated and long relationships with the animals 
that they lived with and eventually often killed. I remember my, my brother has this, there's little cottages around in, 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 in the landscape of, of Sussex and Surrey where, my, where I grew up. And you find houses which were just for animal husbanders. These are people who just dealt with animals, dealt with hoofing them and, and, and helping them and, and, and then also killing them. Is that kind of world in which, yes, animals were a part of the human life and were not treated with abject cruelty? I mean, I, I, they weren't treated as gods, but they weren't treated in the way that we treat animals today. Is that a world that you could find morally acceptable, at least more morally acceptable than ours? I would say that a world in which animals suffered significantly less is something that is better, but it isn't ideal because there is still a certain level of animal suffering going on. If you are going to compare today's world to the world in, you know, 1723 or 1823, yes, there is less suffering then. So mm-hmm. in that way, it would be much better. But in 2023, in today's world, we can, instead of trying to strive for some ideal from the past that is better, we can choose something that is more realistic and signif- you can be 100% sure that there is no suffering. So by moving in a direction of vegan eating, by consuming fewer animals or by consuming no animals and no animal products, you can be sure that there was no suffering that went into that meal. And on top of this, this is going to be cheaper. This is going to be healthier. This is going to be easier to obtain. So you don't necessarily, or you, you don't need to try and reach for some ideal. And on top of it, just from an advocacy standpoint, it becomes really problematic when you start saying, oh, well, let's just try and find, you know, I put in quotations, humane meat, because that is the, that is the easy way out. So I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with meat eaters where they say, oh, I only eat humane meat. Well, that is a practical impossibility because if you look at chickens, for example, 4,999 out of every 5,000 chickens that are raised in the United States are raised on factory farms. I think it's 99.98% of chickens and chickens are the vast majority of the land animals who we are consuming. And so I promise you, you are not eating humane meat. But in today's world, again, in 2023 and beyond, we have access to so many foods that don't require any suffering at all. And therefore, we should really consider eating more of that, more food that doesn't cause suffering and less food that does cause suffering. Would it be in any way possible I'm just now gaming out loud. You're going to tell me no, I suppose. To, to feed as many people as we currently feed without some level of this the, of factory farming. Because it, it does seem to me we have you know, a huge number of human, 300, let's take America, 330 million or so people. That's a lot of eggs. That's a lot of bacon. That's a lot of burgers. How would it be conceivable to do this without, I mean, surely factory farming isn't simply a function of evil, although I think one could make make the argument that it is evil, but it was a function of feeding people and a function of feeding them as efficiently and as cheaply as you possibly can. That's what capitalism does. Is there any way in which it wouldn't have happened that way? I mean, is, was there any way in which you could have 
taken agriculture, humane agriculture, and, and multiplied it at scale to feed this many people? It's a good question. And, and you know, without getting into the, you know, history of factory farming and whether or not it would what would have been possible when factory farming started becoming the norm, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago in the mid in the mid 20th century. I, I think that what we can say is that moving forward, we can choose something that actually is less resource intensive. And unfortunately, factory farming is incredibly inefficient. It's incredibly resource intensive. And we can feed more people by feeding them plant-based foods rather than animal-based foods. We use so much land, so much water, so many natural resources to feed farm animals. But and we, it is so we, incredibly inefficient to feed a farm animal and then to eat that farm animal rather than just feeding people the plants directly. I see. Yeah. I, 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 I see your point. I... I and this is why I kind of come up empty sometimes with this, because because it seems to me that I don't know enough to know how much protein we could really, really get to most people without animals. What is the answer to that? I mean, it, it seems to me there are going to be it, it's it's going to be more more difficult, presumably. Isn't isn't is, it, ha, doesn't animal meat have far more protein in it than most other substances? I mean, you can definitely get a ton of protein from meat but we mo most people's problem is actually eating way too much protein and if you ask any doctors out there they will say that protein deficiency is almost impossible you know every doctor i've ever asked has said they've never met anybody who's protein deficient any vegetarian any vegan anybody at all the protein myth is something that's been pounded into our heads by the meat industry for decades because people obviously love eating meat, and we're I, Americans. We want to get big. <laughs> this uh, is true. We want and to you get can, mighty. We want to be great and powerful. And you can be mighty by eating plant-based foods. I promise you. How you 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 look pretty stacked. You you how you're like five seven five eight. I'm like five nine and a half. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> five nine and a half. These things about. And how much you weigh? You gotta you gotta do a half in there. Okay. Uh, I'm like 190, 190 okay. pounds. And I eat a lot of food. I, I eat a lot of food. I eat a lot of protein as well. I eat tofu, tempeh, seitan, but I eat a lot of plant based meats. You know, vegetables have lots tell of me, tell, uh, no, protein. Tell me about the plant based meats because this is where you could get me because I, I really don't want to live without the taste of chicken, without the taste of a great chili, not a vegetarian chili, without the taste of steak. Is it, we're not quite there yet, are we? But are we, I mean, is it, is it, would it be possible to do that at some point? The food innovations over the last couple of decades alone have been just absolutely monumental in terms of providing options to people who want to eat less meat. And it is really quite beautiful. Even the last seven to eight years have just been give me, astronomical. Give, tell me, give me some examples of, of, of things that have happened that could really actually make a difference. Sure. So choosing an impossible burger over a beef burger. Right. That is a huge step that is something that is going to give you basically the same experience and it doesn't require killing a cow it requires eating why a plant I, why haven't i ever eaten an impossible burger that's a good question because they are 
all over the place, Andrew. Impossible. Not, Burger then, King carries an impossible. Burger King does. Burger right? King does. McDonald's yeah. doesn't yet have a non, non. No, they're they're in works. They're in yeah. They're working on creating a plant based. I was assuming the McRib was entirely plant based. <laughs> 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 it seemed it came from somewhere. <laughs> I mean, it didn't look like it came from an animal. <laughs> but so 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 I should try the the burger the 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 the, the impossible Whopper. Is yeah, that- that's that's something that's is great. And, and you know what's beautiful about living in 2023 versus even 2013 or 2003 is that there are so many options out there. You know, I know lots of vegans who went vegan in the 90s and you know they had to literally make their own soy milk. They had to go to a store, yeah, it's buy gross. soy milk powder and mix it with water which just sounds so See, disgusting now, you go. now, now you, go, you go to the you, grocery you store let us have milk anymore <laughs> but now you go to the grocery store there's soy milk almond milk hemp milk oat milk it's uh, so fucking irritating so- <laughs> these people are it's beautiful andrew <laughs> I, I have to sit behind another Gen Z are ordering an almond, half almond half oat half whatever but soy it's not milk. gen z it's everybody People no, across the board, people. people across the board are choosing more and more plant-based options, which is why these companies who pretty much only care about their bottom line, they are introducing this all the time. I mean, even Starbucks, you know, a few years ago, they only had soy milk. Then they introduced almond milk, then coconut milk, and now oat milk. So you see across the board, even corporations who pretty much just care about making money are adding more vegan options, more plant-based options, because that is the future. John, corporations are good. The, the desire to make money can be an extraordinarily positive thing. It, can, it just depends what you attach it to. If you attach it to the ability to reduce suffering, then the profit motive is your friend. John, don't, do, not, do not criticize the capitalists if they are actually bringing about the revolution that you want. Right? I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just saying that if your main motivation is to make money for your investors and your stockholders. But you see how that's a more effective argument for this to say, look, we're going to give you more choices, not fewer. We're not going to sit here lecturing you about not eating meat, but we're going to offer you these new, interesting, new Yummy things to eat that that can that come with a clear conscience. That's a and to sell that with all the power of of, of multinational capitalism. Yeah, and and what's beautiful is that more and more people are making those kinder, compassionate choices, whether or not they're doing it for ethical purposes or they're doing it because they just like the taste of oat milk more than the taste of cow's milk. Whatever the reason is, there are lots and lots of people making those decisions on a regular basis. And that is pretty beautiful to me. And that is something that just shows that we are moving towards a, a more compassionate world where there are more options for people who want to make about, kinder choices. What about buying like fake meat in a supermarket? Can people do that yet? Hi there. Yeah, people can- this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. 
you'll be able to add it to your dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>